It's Nick Jaina time. <laughs> I'm Nick Jaina, and I'm reading from my book, which is entitled Get It While You Can. Sadness, a field guide. I don't want to say that modern life is a jungle, that we have tamed the wild of nature in creating our civilizations, and yet allowed the random and the chaotic to remain. That although we might not fear the tiger and the boa in our daily walks, we still have great monsters to fear, monsters that we have neither the guns to shoot nor the armor to protect ourselves from. Nor do I want to imply that I have walked farther, faster, stronger, or that I have seen more. I haven't seen anything. I've felt a smoldering unease in my gut on warm August evenings, and I have danced with a pretty girl once or twice. However, when arriving in a new city, some orientation is welcome to even the most seasoned traveler. And I've been to this city. I know my way around. I offer you some points of interest. Wistfulness. This is a tender sadness, romantic. It is full of an inexpressible feeling of life being better, more real, more fun, some other time, somewhere, of the old house where you could dance to music that felt fresh and new, of the old town with the easy river access that no one would ever use because there was a new mall just built. It's easy to forget that those times weren't happy when they were occurring. They're only happy now in retrospect in relation to the present. Lethargy. This is a poor excuse for sadness. This is dragging a sack of tuba bells behind you. Where are you taking them? The world is a narrow sidewalk. Look behind you at all the eager people who can't squeeze by, who just want to make it to the end of the block to buy a burrito. These are the prisoners of your lethargy. Melancholy. The Greeks thought that this came from an excess of black bile. Where does the black bile come from? Are you born with it? Do you inhale it somehow? Is it related to diet? Does it start off a different color and then turn black? How much time can you spend thinking about black bile before you start to get sick? This is perhaps the best type of sadness to achieve. Morrissey sang about it often. This is a thrilling, romantic, ennobling sadness. This is your body screaming with joy if joy can be taken out of its normal association with happiness. This is the sadness of a well-lit grocery store full of people you'll never talk to. The sadness of a glimpse of your city from the crest of a hill, the bridge is drawn to let a barge through. The sadness from only being allowed to live one life and having to choose what to do and not muck it up by spreading yourself too thin. The sadness of not being able to be everywhere at once, to be at every party, audit every course, drive every parkway, taste every dessert. The sadness of loving a song, wanting to live inside a song, wanting to kiss every person you see. The sadness of having a body, of not being able to levitate and glide down the hill. The sadness of walking through a library, feeling like you're in a morgue, and wanting to rescue every neglected book. Knowing that no matter how many books you read, you'll still never read even one-tenth of one percent of all the books at your local library. Don't try to shrug off melancholy. It's the kind of sadness that will take you somewhere. It will admit you to certain clubs. Let it happen. Despair. At least it's not permanent. Embedded in its DNA is the knowledge that it is an aberration and that there will soon be a correction, a return to the mean. 
It is perhaps the only time mathematics can help you get out of a sadness. Depression. This is serious. This is the finger of God on your chest, pinning you down. Not the God that children pray to at night, asking for help with passing the next level on their video games. It's the God who hates the naked body, who hates dancing. The cartoon God who gets cranky when he leans back on a cloud and accidentally sits on a thunderbolt and who throws that thunderbolt down without a care in the world whom it might hit. Depression is being unemployed and being too sad to look for work, too sad to make a phone call when you see a promising advertisement for employment, too sad to even answer the phone when it's probably someone offering work. Depression is having a gun and being too limp to point it at your head instead letting its weight pull your arm down, down, down. When you are depressed, you are quite literally shooting yourself in the foot. Misery. This is life in the trenches. This is digging down when you need to look up. This is going to take some train tickets and yard sales to undo. Maybe the time has come to try to lift this tarp off of you, even if it's just one corner of the tarp, even if lifting it leaves the tarp flapping in the wind. You need to be able to see. Torpor. This is livened by the dictionary's whimsical suffixing of the word for adjectival use into the word torporific. Regret. Time is not a boomerang. Time is not TiVo. Time is not an airport shuttle. Time does not loop around and come back for stragglers. Time does not exchange your ticket if you slept through the boarding call. Time is not a pigeon with a compass in its beak. Time doesn't know where it's going. It doesn't care. Time cuts through canyons and farmlands, through homes and cities. Time takes the easiest route. Regret implies that time has some sort of culpability. Time takes no such responsibility. Time issues no receipts. Time is a barreling locomotive on the loose, sliding down the tracks into what you thought was a station, but is really just a phone booth, a drinking fountain, a pile of stones. It's a cardboard cutout of a shelter. It's a soggy spoonful of discount cornflakes. Guilt. This is a self-imposed verdict handed down by a jury deep inside your heart. There is no punishment, though. There is no penance, so the guilt remains. If only hard labor could work it off, if only solitary confinement could make it right. Perhaps the judgment should come with a sentence. Why not? The jury is all imagined, anyway. You have been sentenced to bake a cobbler, then go to the big bookstore in town where you must buy a daily newspaper from a city you've never been to. Arbitrary, sure, but not any more arbitrary than the punishments they hand out in some courtrooms. with whoa it's a surprising sadness a sadness that stops you in the middle of your walk whoa what happened then you sit down and try to retrace your steps whoa this is really something you can't even remember how you got to where you are who knows if you'll ever get back This is walking on the edge of a sword, staying on that blade even though it hurts, because you know that slipping and falling will be even more painful. This is life behind the gates of a train crossing, waiting and waiting for a train to pass, a train that is too long for you to even count the number of cars. Then the train slows and stops and backs up while you sit there waiting for it to pass. 
sorrow. You can only attain sorrow if something bad has actually happened to you, which sets it apart from most other types of sadness. Sorrow is something you wear like a cloak. People can see it on you, and they don't ask you to remove it when you come into their homes from the cold. In fact, they're pleased to see someone wearing such a finely tailored garment. They look at their own clothes and realize how cheap they are. Then they turn away, ashamed that they would wish for such a heavy cloak. Dolefulness. Dolefulness makes your eyes big and round, and when your eyes are big and round, they can let in more light. At least you haven't stopped seeing. Existential sadness. Sadness about the state of being sad. This is an acknowledgement of the futility of thinking about sadness, of writing lists about the different kinds of sadness. Grief. This is something torn away from you, your fingers having curled around their heart and their soul, and then having your fingers ripped off. Unhappiness. This is not sadness. You spend your whole life at a cocktail party hosted by influential and powerful people, rich people. Not to say that you are rich or powerful or influential yourself, necessarily, but you've been invited to their party. You belong there. You can tell the difference between a tort and a tart just by glancing at a teetering silver tray. You don't enjoy menthols, but you'll accept them if they're all that's offered to you. You can explain how Foucault influenced your gender identity. You even know how to joke about that. You laugh at the right moments, along with everyone else. You put your hand on someone else's forearm when you reach the exciting part of the story. Unhappiness is when you step outside the party for a brief respite. You walk out on the veranda and are momentarily surprised at how dark and cold it has gotten since you arrived at the party. Your arms cross your chest and you hold your shoulders in a tight shiver as you look over the hedges and boulevards. You sense something wrong. Nothing is wrong. You can always return to the party. The door is unlocked. Dismay. This is only for kings and vicars. Common people don't know the shame of prematurely having to abdicate the throne or the disappointment of hearing about the divorce of a man and woman in one's parish, a man and woman who had been counseled on the subject of divorce, who were told to give it a thousand more chances because God gives you so many chances. Dismay can only befall you if you own an estate or live in a soap opera. Dismay is when your fortunes have gone south and your fortunes are oil wells and dairy farms. Dismay is righteous and grand and bigger and more important than most anything. Worthy of headlines just below the fold on the front pages of regional newspapers. However, it lacks the depth of almost any other kind of sadness. It is a minor league sadness striving for a spot on the roster. Happiness. Don't let the name fool you. This is also sadness. This is perhaps the most desperate form of sadness there is. Think of all the lists you make, full of reasons why you should be happy, why you are happy, damn it. Apple wedges with cheese, city parks, the volatility of the stock market, the way she hugged you from behind unexpectedly at that New Year's Eve party. Aren't those also the reasons why you're sad? Happiness is running to the post office with a mixtape for a friend, having quickly thrown on a baseball-style shirt with a number on the back because of the heat, but happiness only lasts for a moment. After all, you're running in pleated pants, which look stupid. Any second now, you'll realize that.
I'm here with my friend Leslie in uh, San Francisco. Hi, Leslie. Hi. So I met you after all the events in the book and the publication of the book took place. So you're not in the book. Normally I'm interviewing people and asking them what they thought their side of the story was, but um, I just like talking to you and you're not in the book, so I thought we would talk about sadness. <laughs> okay, so what we a just, privilege. <laughs> we just listened to the Sadness the Field Guide where I list all these different sadnesses. and um, Wait, did I tell you about um, the patient that I just had who had broken heart syndrome? Yeah, but tell, tell me again. Okay, um, so I had never heard of this because I hadn't really done a whole lot of cardiac nursing before um, working on this unit. And I had a patient the other night who was in for stress cardiomyopathy, which is called Takotsubo's, which is also called broken heart syndrome. And I'm probably butchering the Japanese pronunciation of that, but it is the name of a pot or like a fishing net used mm -hmm. to catch octopus. Mm -hmm. And it's the shape that your heart takes when it's under this certain sort of duress. And it's basically your heart having a heart attack or intense pain. Because Wait, just from emotional pain, your, from, heart, yeah. your heart changes its shape? Yeah. I, th I think it uh, takes like a slight rotation or do you, yeah, you develop cardiomyopathy. Just it's, it can be temporary or it could never heal. And is this something that Western medicine acknowledges? It is. Okay. And it is more prevalent in women and it is, you know, a stress-induced cardiac issue. And, you know, people... Like, I was talking with some of the other nurses about it, and there was one nurse who said that she'd had a patient with it who, you know, whose son had died. Like, it's typically... Um, it happens after someone has a really stressful event or something life-altering, and your heart changes. Wow. <laughs> and then how can you treat that? You treat it um, with, you know, chemistry, with medication and kind of weight. So it's an emotional problem that you treat it with medicine? Well... Is there, are there like emotional treatments for it too? It's Western medicine. Well, yeah, I think that they probably do a psych eval and... I so mean, is it literally like... When someone ha is having, you know, emotional issues at the hospital, we bring in psychiatrists so I mean we're still in the realm of western medicine it's not like we have Nick Jana come in and bring his guitar and sing our patients to sleep <laughs> even though you offered. generously offered <laughs> I <laughs> anyway that wouldn't heal the broken hearted she did um, compliment me or complimented the manager working the next day on my care of her and really all I did was um you know sat and talked with her for a while and made sure that she got a good night's sleep and it really do anything that's something yeah um I guess you could say I gave a shit that's a big deal mm -hmm. it's all some people want
chapter 8. I've been fired more times than anyone I've ever met, yet never once has someone said the words, you're fired, to me. Like so many things that happen in the movies, getting fired is less exciting in real life. I've also never heard someone say the words, you're hired. Getting and losing jobs has always been very nebulous. At the end of an interview, someone will say, well, can you come in on Monday? Looking back, I've never been sure if I've actually had any job. Whenever I hear, yeah, we don't need you to come in on Monday, I always have the urge to ask, well, how about Tuesday? I don't think I've ever been fired because I didn't get the job done. I'm sure it was because of my attitude. I've never done a good job of disguising the fact that when I finish the work they give me, I proceed to do my own work. All these years, I probably would have been much better off if I'd worked harder at pretending to work because the illusion of workers working is what is valued most highly in workplaces. I love working. Work is just doing stuff, building stuff, making stuff, cleaning stuff. And yet the kind of work I've often found myself getting paid for is so different than the kind of work I love doing. Instead of building towards a career in a secure field, in the name of freedom, I've often taken the jobs that mean the least, temporary jobs. I was hired and fired from Kaiser Permanente in Portland six times, and each time I'd come back to a different section of the building and work for a different supervisor. One time I was working on the sixth floor, and I was lucky enough to have my own cubicle. One of my responsibilities involved making copies of a particular form and then putting each of those photocopied forms back in the copier and copying something on the other side of the paper. However, as soon as the ink is affixed by a copy machine, the paper has undergone a fundamental change. This is why the page is warm and shiny when you pull it out. The machine doesn't like it when you put that same piece of paper through it again. Eventually, the machine stopped working. I told my supervisor, and she gave me the number of the copy machine repairman. It's strange to think how often, when I'm new on the job, I've ended up with a responsibility I probably shouldn't have. I called the repairman. He met me back at the copy machine. After he fixed it, he told me that I couldn't just put the same piece of paper back in the machine because the machine would keep breaking. I explained that the only way I could do my job was to put the paper through the copy machine two times. And he told me that the copy machine would keep breaking if I did that and he'd have to keep coming back to fix it. I told him that I didn't know how else to do what they were asking me to do except to put it through twice. It was his job, he said, to fix copy machines and he didn't care if it was the same machine over and over again. I began to wonder how many other people were spending their days in situations like these? How many people were doing something so disconnected from what they really cared about that their primary goal was to make it through the day without conflict? most jobs, you can look around and find the one person who really knows what's going on. Often this is not the boss, it's just the person who actually cares about the work getting done. In every office, there is a dance of uncaring people around this one overcaring person. The point of the dance is to run out the clock, to walk slowly to and from the bathroom, to stare at a piece of paper, to put files into boxes and take them back out, while the overcaring person harumps and fills out his or her daily reports. It's as if you asked a group of improvisers to act like they were working in an office. It's almost funny to watch. 
and then it's not. I had another job where I worked in a warehouse near the airport. Because we were working with electronics, we had to be protected from static electricity. So there was a big blue rubber mat on my desk, and I wore a strap around my wrist, which plugged into a grounding device. I understood its purpose, but it was hard not to feel like I was connected to a machine that was monitoring all my actions. I tried not to dwell on the matrix implications. Eventually, I learned to ignore the strap, which meant that sometimes, when I needed to go to the bathroom, I would be yanked back into my chair. The first day at that job, about an hour in, the guy sitting in front of me turned around and started talking to the guy behind me. He said, So I'm in this warehouse last night, right? And it's really dark, so I light a flare. And right when I do, I see this guy in front of me with a knife. I try to pull up my shotgun, but he's too close. So I hit him in the face with the barrel and he falls backward off the balcony. Then his buddy comes up behind him and I blow a hole right through his chest. It was awesome. I was frozen for the first half of his narrative, but then decided that he was talking about a video game. He had to be, right? I couldn't picture this guy with glasses and a ponytail actually hitting someone with a shotgun barrel. Halfway through my first day, the boss called a meeting so he could tell us about how the company was really hurting that month. The problem, he explained, was that they weren't moving enough high-revenue items. I hadn't yet figured out how the company made money, so I wasn't shocked to find that they weren't making enough. The boss said that they'd try to think of everything they could, and the only solution was to cut everyone's hours back to 30 a week. He gave us a fearful smile and said it was just short-term and not personal. He finished by asking if anyone had any suggestions, anything at all, for how the company could make more money. He gave us a minute to think it over, or pretend to think it over, in complete silence. I had no idea what the company did or how it could possibly have any money to hire people in the first place, so I just kept quiet. There are two types of temp jobs. One situation is an office that has been overwhelmed with work and has been forced into seeking outside help. As a temp worker, this is the situation you want. Everyone is glad to see you because every little thing you do is a bonus. There wasn't anyone there before you to do this work. And now, magically, you are here taking care of it as if a little elf has arrived to make everything easier. The other kind of situation is when you're replacing someone who's out due to sickness or vacation. This is going to be a terrible experience. This is the you're not Elizabeth assignment. Because everyone in the office who sees you for the first time is expecting to see Elizabeth and get some help from her because she knows how to do this certain thing. But then, but instead they see you, dumb old you. And even though you're a guy, or especially because you're a guy and they're trying to temper the disappointment with humor, they say, you're not Elizabeth which you're supposed to laugh at because all office humor, whether it's I hate Mondays or thank God it's Friday, has the subtext of please fucking kill me. I have a feeling that even more than my distaste for pretending to work, not finding the you're not Elizabeth joke funny is what got me fired. To me, laughing at that joke would have felt like holding out my hands for the handcuffs. I wanted to laugh with joy instead of pain. I watched the film Office Space one night after work and it was almost too much to take. There's a character named Michael Bolton 
who always has to deal with people telling him that he has the same name as a famous singer, as though he didn't know that already. The day after I saw that movie, I was in my little cubicle with a list of names I was supposed to cold call. Next to me was a woman with a list of her own. We all hated cold calling and did everything we could to avoid being left with those names. It was like we'd been asked to slaughter lambs, but at least on a farm, we'd have ended up with lamb chops for dinner. I was staring at my list of names, trying to figure out how I could get through them all or get out of calling them, when my cubicle neighbor turned to me with a look of pure joy and said, Oh my God, there's someone on here named Michael Bolt, like the singer. Had she seen the movie? Did she know that I had just seen the movie? My expressionless face probably terrified her, and she turned back to her phone. Later that day, the boss told me he didn't need me to come in on Monday. Just because I kept digging my own grave didn't mean I wasn't suffering. I never wanted to be fired. On the long walks home, I'd rehearse what I'd say to my wife, Amanda. I dreaded trying to explain why I'd lost another job. I guess they ran out of work for me, I'd say. I don't know what happened. I worked in another warehouse near the airport that boxed up cell phones to ship out to customers. The conveyor belt would roll them past and I'd have to install the battery and send them along. It was frustrating to know that these phones were heading out to every corner of the country. These phones were living the life I wanted to live, traveling, connecting, communicating. The week the internet bubble burst, I was working in the Trump building on Wall Street. The Nasdaq peaked on Friday, March 10th, 2000. My first day was the following Monday. I worked on the 11th floor at an investment capital company. I was in the corner of a big room where a bunch of guys were calling potential investors and trying to soothe their collective anxiety. They kept telling these people that the market was really volatile at the moment, but that they needed to ride it out. They kept saying that word, volatile, all week. I bet someone came in and coached everyone on how to use the word volatile. You could see everything you needed to see about these men by how much they hunched over their phones. If they leaned back in their chairs and let their stomachs stick out, they were protected from all the chaos, or at least believed themselves to be. If they were curled up over their phones, pressing their temples, they had no contacts left to call. These men were little specks in the ocean of the stock market, and their job was to act like they had some ability to navigate these volatile seas. It was incredible to be there at the top in the building named after the most famous American money men, on the streets synonymous with greed. Just after the technology stock market hit its highest point in history, you would think that it would be glorious to be at the top, but all I saw was terror. One time in Portland, I was called in to replace an Elizabeth at the reception desk of a medical center. The reception desk is a horrible place to land because everything that happens there depends upon personal connections and idiosyncratic knowledge of that particular office. It doesn't matter how good you are at typing or taking messages, you're constantly disappointing everyone. You're not Elizabeth. I'm sorry I'm not Elizabeth, but can I help you with something? I'll just wait until Elizabeth comes back. If I could have somehow imbibed all of Elizabeth's spirit, if the temp agency would have allowed me to put a straw in Elizabeth's brain and drink up her knowledge, I would have done that. This particular Elizabeth, I learned, was out of the office because her mom had died. Whenever you get a temporary assignment, you're always trying to gauge how long it will last. It feels heartless to react to a death so coldly, but what's the difference between you and Sam Spade investigating the murder of Miles Archer? You're both just looking for clues. 
this case, it seemed to me that an Elizabeth grieving for her mother would be out for a while. Indeed, the agency told me it'd probably be a week. Even though the first day was rough, I still needed the job, and enough people were starting to accept that it wasn't Elizabeth. I came in the next morning wanting to do my best. I was surprised to walk into the reception area to see Elizabeth herself sitting at the desk answering phone calls. Her eyes didn't look puffy or tear-stained. She was handling all the calls and packages that I had stumbled over the day before. It looked effortless. It was the only time in all my temping when I ever came face to face with an actual Elizabeth, the mythical creature that I was always replacing. She was such a professional Elizabeth that even the death of her own mother, the Ur-Elizabeth, didn't waylay her for more than a day. My heart broke for her. I wouldn't want to do anything for weeks after the death of someone I cared so much about. But now I wonder if maybe this was her choice. Maybe it was her way of working through the grief to be in a place where she was useful, where she played a role that people appreciated. After all, that is the most important thing that work can give you, a place where you can belong and contribute. When I saw Elizabeth, I just turned around and went home, happy to have a day off. been Nick Jaina time. Today I read two chapters from my book, Get It While You Can, from Perfect Day Publishing, all musical accompaniment written and recorded by me, this theme music that just went away. <laughs> it's by Richie Green. There it is. What you heard today is what I do live around the world many, many times a year. Uh, if you want to see a show or help me book a show or order my book, Go to my website, nickjana.com, N-I-C-K-J-A-I-N-A. Don't put the A before the I.